Pursuant to the Fair Use Doctrine of Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, limited use of copyrighted material is permitted for specific purposes such as criticism, comment, news, reporting, teaching, scholarship, education, and research. This podcast is otherwise copyrighted by the Underground Christian Broadcast. Welcome to episode 37 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. Over this little extended Christmas break, I've noticed that the number of podcasters and independent media broadcasts who are citing and interpreting scripture has increased, especially in the context of current events. It's good that the Bible's getting some attention in these evolving times, but we have to be very careful not to force an interpretation on Scripture that's not founded on the principles of Scripture. While there's room for some disagreement on certain interpretations of Scripture, such as how Calvinists and Arminianists interpret and understand certain biblical references, there's no room for disagreement on fundamental principles of Christianity, like we die once and there is no repeated reincarnations. Blending of Christian and pagan ideas like reincarnation is a trick of Satan that leads many well-meaning people astray. This can be a particularly sticky problem when it comes to unexpected situations in Scripture. I'm not talking about the ones where Jesus does something that some Christians view as being out of character, like when he appears as the angel of the Lord in 2 Kings 19.35 and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night, or even that the angel of the Lord in this passage is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I'm talking about the really difficult passages, like the ones in Genesis that discuss the creation of the early earth and later civilizational developments. These are very important passages that, in my humble view, are fabulously misunderstood by many Bible commentators. Some interpretations get close to being correct, but in the 21st century, pretty close is not good enough. We need to do a lot better because early biblical verses, supplemented with later biblical verses, offer the only revealed glimpses into a time period that's going to be recreated in the end times, a period that I believe we are fast approaching, if not already in. Jesus warned us that this early period of human history will be recreated in the end times when he said, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And what was it like in the days of Noah? It's summed up in Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This was an era when the hearts of man, the hearts of all people, were turned away from God and toward evil, continually. They loved evil and cherished evil, even if they didn't always act out the evil. So in the future, we are facing what will be even worse than it was in the days of Noah. For Jesus also said in Matthew 24, verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, the future days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, what could make our approaching future very much worse than our distant past? Two things. Technology that did not exist in the past and a spirit that our forefathers did not know. Let's stop for a moment and exegete that Matthew 24 verse, because it's a good example of what is going to come. The first sentence makes the case that if God doesn't intervene, something is not going to survive. This translation says no human beings will survive, but that's a translational interpretation. 
The Greek word is sarx, which can mean flesh, as in the soft parts of the body, a flesh-covered body, which can be a human body or another living creature, like either a man or a beast, or it can mean human nature, as in spiritual nature. Regardless of which of these three definitions applies, it's obviously not good from a human perspective. It will be even worse if the foretold event incorporates all three of these definitions. To repeat the passage, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So God is going to intervene to stop the progression of something that would end tragically for humanity and maybe the rest of animal life on the planet. Some kind of physical destruction, and maybe even the destruction of our human nature itself, which is the very thing that makes us human. When most people think of the Great Tribulation, they think of God doing things to destroy many people and much of the earth, and that's true. But through that destruction, God is going to save people and the earth. In other words, God's destruction is the only way to save humanity and the world from the more total destruction that would otherwise be brought about by his enemy. So God is saying that something is going to change in the world that will create some conditions that existed during the days of Noah, but it will be far worse because if they are not stopped supernaturally by God, they will result in the permanent destruction of human beings, possibly all other higher life forms on earth, and or whatever makes us human. Or all three. And why is God going to do this according to the scriptural passage? For the sake of the elect. To understand that bit of information, we have to define who constitutes the elect. This is one of those terms that creates disputes within the church because it's often raised to the status of a doctrine, in this case, the doctrine of election, which is belief in a particular interpretation of Scripture that is sometimes used, in this case, to supposedly define true believers and exclude false ones. So, Christians are often trained to have very strong beliefs as to specific connotations of the word elect and to whom it applies. Despite some theological differences of opinion, most Christians believe that the elect are people who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. So using that definition, it's Christians who are the elect. In Greek, the word is electos, which means chosen, and is used in the New Testament to describe followers of Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, the word is bahar, which is used in the Old Testament to describe prophets, the nation of Israel political offices, nations, and Israel's coming Messiah. In other words, despite what some Bible commentators strenuously insist is the true truth, the Bible uses essentially the same term to describe a wide variety of people, nations, and offices who are chosen by God, which means called by God, to do something that he wants done. God chooses who gets to be granted specific titles, honors, powers, and authorities, but he does not describe the exact mechanisms that he uses to make those choices, enforce those choices, or influence those choices. And God chose a nation, one nation, and only one nation, Israel. He chose a Messiah for that one nation, which is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one, consecrated one, or a man who is both king and priest. After Jesus died and ascended, Christians bestowed on him the title, the Greek title, Christos, which coincidentally also means anointed. It's the same word, but a different language. So what's the point? The point is that the Bible does not clarify which group of elect people this verse refers to. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. 
The normal Christian interpretation is that it means Christians, and it certainly may mean that, especially in the context of Christians having an important role to play after Christ returns for his millennial reign. If there are not people or animals left on the earth, the important role we will be playing after Christ's return would be nullified. We haven't talked about what that role will be, but it's an important one of co-rulership and intermediary activities. But what it might also mean is the other elect, which is Israel and the Jewish members of Israel. After all, God made a series of promises to Israel to restore it at the end of the age, which was confirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11.25-26. It reads, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Oh, you say, but that refers to Christians because the covenant promises to Israel were all transferred to the church. Well, my replacement theology friends, I think the Apostle Paul would disagree with that sentiment based on what he says in verse 28. It says, as regards the gospel, you can read that as the Christian church. They, meaning Jews in Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they, meaning Jews in Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now that is a direct reference to the unconditional covenant promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with repeated promises thereafter made to honor the Jewish descendants of these men. These covenant promises were not made to the church, but to the elect of Israel, as emphasized by verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. The gifts of God and the calling of God, when presented in an unconditional form, will never be taken away from the recipient of those gifts and that calling. And God does not play cutesy word games with his promises like men do. Paul continues with his explanation to Christians in verse 30. For just as you, talking to the Christians, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their, meaning Jews and Israel, disobedience. Let's stop there. Paul is addressing Gentiles, non-Jews who were never given the covenant promises of salvation that were promised to Israel because they, meaning we, were disobedient to God. But still, the Gentiles received mercy from God. Why? because of the disobedience of the Jews, of Israel, in rejecting their Messiah. But Paul is making a comparison. He is saying, in the same way that you got mercy because the Jews were disobedient, and then he continues in verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. They meaning the Jews in Israel, was disobedient for the sake of the Gentiles. And who caused them to be disobedient? It was God. It is God who controls the affairs of men on the earth. It is God who caused Israel to be disobedient in order to show mercy to the Gentiles. He used the Jewish nation to create a mechanism to extend his mercy to the Gentiles. And just like his son Jesus was the chosen instrument of salvation to the whole world, the Jews, as covenant Israel, was the chosen instrument of God to bring salvation to the Gentiles through 
Israel's bad behavior. But if God can use Israel to redeem the Gentiles, will he leave Israel in an unforgiven, unredeemed state forever? Paul answers that question in the 32nd verse. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It is through the continued disobedience of the Gentiles that God will, in the end, show mercy to the Jews and save Israel at the end of the age, which means save all the Jews on the earth who have survived up to that point in history. So the long way to get to the point is that the elect constitute different people, groups, and offices depending on the context of the section of scripture that we read. The end times will be a time when things change dramatically and for the worse. The change will apply to Israel to some extent, but it will apply to the Gentiles in a massive and tragic way. All of this change takes place in the context of an ongoing worldwide conflict between two forces, one championing good and one championing evil. The conflict began as a spiritual uprising that did not involve human beings, but the uprising spilled over into the human world to affect human beings. The good side has Jesus Christ as its leader, who is the human incarnation component of the Godhead. Jesus commands good spirits known as angels on behalf of a select portion of humanity, the portion that affirms Jesus as their leader in God. The evil side has Satan as its leader, who is a created spirit who commands an army of spirit rebels. These are fallen angels who are used to control all people who do not follow Jesus through a system that the Bible calls the world. The world is opposed to God and Jesus because it is completely controlled by Satan and his angels and has been for most of human history. Occasional men and women followed God historically, but it was not until God chose Israel that an entire people were elected to be God's representatives on earth. That was followed by Jesus Christ and the birth of the church, which is a special time during which Jews and Gentiles are invited into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ in a different covenant a promise that is extended to everyone through mercy and grace. Those Christians will be grafted into covenant Israel. But the church age has an expiration date on it. The Bible tells us that a day is coming and will soon be here when the real church is gone and it will be next to impossible to find out any truthful information at all about the real God. In Amos 8, 11-12, the prophet wrote of this approaching day when he said, The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. It's hard for us to imagine this happening in a world filled with Christians and churches, especially those of us who are fortunate to be living in a part of the world that still embraces the Jewish Christian God publicly. But those days are coming, and they are closer than most of us think. Those days will be brought to us not by Pfizer, but by the spirit of the age, a rising spirit of deception and demonization that has yet to make an appearance. Now, some people think of spirit as an attitude, and certainly the spirit that's approaching will have an attitude, but it's much more than an attitude. It is an actual force, an intelligent malevolence that is going to infect the minds of people, including those who call themselves Christian, and cause them to do certain things they should not do and become a people they should not become, but with their hearty approval. 
This metamorphosis was foretold by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 4. It reads, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. When the Holy Spirit of God spoke to Paul, he told him some important information about the age to come, which Paul passed along to his protege Timothy, since Paul had no idea when the age would begin. This is a breakdown of what we can expect based on what the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul at that time. In this day, on the day that's looming on the horizon, these are the, these are the items. Number one, professing Christians are going to depart from the faith that was given to us through Paul and the other apostles and embrace another faith, one that will have some similarity to the Christian faith, but that will expressly reject indispensable Christian doctrines. That process of leaving Christianity for another faith is known as apostasy. It does not mean that the Christians will become irreligious. It means that these Christians will adopt some other belief than true Christianity. Number two, the reason that these Christians will apostatize is because they will seek and take advice from deceiving spirits, intelligent entities who will promulgate doctrines that have been created by demons, which are fallen angels. Doctrines are essential, defining characteristics or important explanations of a component of a faith. Fallen angels are malevolent spirits who are warring with God and Jesus Christ through humanity. They will teach a kind of spirituality that sounds really nice and true to sinful, vain, undiscerning Christians, and in fact have been teaching this form of Christianity for a long time. Number three, the apostate Christians will develop an evolving ethic that will be governed by the motto, rules for thee but not for me. Rather than advocating for blind equal justice, they will promote and advocate for special treatment for a protected and privileged class of people and special justice for an undesired class of people. They may occasionally admit that their rules of behavior are hypocritical, but they won't care because achieving their objective will be the only important consideration to them. Number four, they will not only lose interest in marriage, they will actually ban it altogether. Marriage is a favorite target of deceiving spirits because it's an institution created by God to provide stability in society through monogamous reproduction, small group responsibilities, and education and nurturing of children. Instead of marriage, they will promote licentiousness, dependency on outside authority to meet daily needs, artificial procreation, and governmental control over children. Number five, lastly but not leastly, they will prohibit the consumption of certain kinds of food and promote the consumption of other kinds of foods. They will prohibit the consumption of natural foods provided by God and insist that only artificially created foods by man be consumed. So where are we today relative to this list? Well, to start, Christianity is fragmented and splintering further by the day. At the same time, there is a worldwide craving to bring all religions together under a single unified faith umbrella of ecumenism that will necessarily demand the forceful abandonment of Christian exclusivity claims on the grounds of their being divisive and hateful. Ecumenism, or ecumenism, is defined nicely by Eastern Orthodox Father George Calciu, as read by Father Peter Hears. These religious leaders call it what it is, 
it's a heresy. Father George Kautschul, one of the great contemporary confessors of the faith in Romania and the prisons, of the atheist prisons, here's what he has to say about ecumenism, and he has much more to say. I'm just giving you one little taste, right? Now, we're talking about ecumenism as a dogmatic heresy, right? The overturning of the boundaries, the overturning of the nature of the church, the overturning of the need for repentance to come to the church, all the rest that we've implied and presented to, to, up to this point. There is a spirit unveiling in Europe, he says, in the world in general, a new age kind of spirit that frequently changes its appearance and speech, striking the Christian world from all sides. Its image is generally gentle, its discourse attractive, but its intent perfidious. The spirit can speak in beautiful words about family, but its intent is to annihilate it. It can speak on the church full of love for all, a sort of religious syncretism, but its urge is primarily to dispel orthodoxy. It can speak about nations and their homelands as something it tries to support, but its intent is to destroy both the church and the nations. This spirit is called ecumenism. This ecumenism is being sold as a peaceful way to coexist, but it's actually just a step toward establishing another faith one that will rise from the ashes of the past through unseen mediaries. Ecumenism, for all its nice words, is not the endgame faith. There is another, darker faith lurking behind it. The proponents of this hidden faith and their ecumenical pathfinders embrace a very different worldview than Orthodox or even Evangelical Christians. Some of them masquerade as Christians in order to infiltrate and permeate the institutions of Christ. They work to impose culturally acceptable values on the church, values that conflict with traditional Christian beliefs and values. These infiltrators have to lie, cheat, and steal their way into positions of authority, be they Christian, political, business, or social authorities, by pretending to be something that they're not. These frauds will glory in the belief that the ends they create will justify the treacherous means by which they gain their ends, and in that process, they will lead many people to apostatize through heresy. Dr. Ed Heinsen summed up nicely the apostasy of this movement at an address from Regent University. Apostasy is a simple Greek word, apostasia, which means to stand away from something, to make a declaration of truth, and then later turn around and say, I really don't believe that. We have a major problem today of people supposedly deconverting all the time. You know, I thought I believed the Bible, but I really don't believe it anymore, or I don't believe the basic truths of the Bible. I'm going to reinterpret it, reinvent it, reshape it, get it to say what I think I want it to say. Uh, and there have always been challenges to the faith. Uh, and there's always been uh, tendencies, leakages toward apostasy, so to speak. But today, out of control more than ever before. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the last times some will depart from the faith. Uh, expect this as you get closer to the end times. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said that day will not come unless the falling away, the apostasia, the departure from the faith, comes first, and then the man of sin, the lawless one, uh, is revealed. In other words, 
the Antichrist will not come to power until after there is a wave of apostasy and unbelief. Now, in the Christian world, there have always been differences of opinion from one denomination to another uh, as to how we understand church governance or how we understand uh, the process of explaining the gospel ought to be done or how the process of salvation takes place. But for the most part, uh, until about the middle of the 19th century, most Christians believed the Bible was the word of God. Jesus was the son of God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and he was ultimately coming again, etc. cetera. Uh, those were the fundamentals of the faith, uh, the basic uh, truths of the evangelical movement. Uh, evangel is simply the Greek word for gospel. Uh, they believed the, the message of the gospel was true and needed to be proclaimed. By the end of the 19th century, apostasy was rampant in Europe. Uh, European theologians were saying, Jesus really is not the son of God. A teacher, maybe a good teacher, maybe not a good teacher but a human being. Uh, he was not born of a virgin. Uh, the virgin birth is a biological impossibility. Um, he didn't really die for your sins in the sense of atoning for your sins. He died the death of a martyr, of an example, and that's about all, etc. And they began to water down the basic truths of the Christian faith, and the end result was apostasy lukewarm unbelief spreads through the European churches and they become spiritually dead for the most part and tragically still are. Well, there are some exceptions. I've preached in Germany and England and France and various places and seen God do some amazing things, but those are minority situations. The vast majority of people in Europe have no confidence at all in the truth of the Bible or the power of the message of the gospel. The European church for the most part is dead. And the influence of it academically then spreads from Europe to England, from England to America. And by the beginning of the 20th century, theological liberalism and apostasy is spreading in the United States. The mainline denominations are walking away from the faith. Now. When the 20th century began, the liberal churches had most of the money, most of the buildings, most of the people, and most of the influence. But throughout the 20th century, within 100 years, that influence begins to dissipate because there's no commitment to the Bible, certainly no commitment to evangelism, and the influence of Christianity in American society begins to die. The only exception are fundamental evangelical Christians who say, no, the Bible is the word of God. It's the inspired word. The message of the gospel is true. Jesus really is the son of God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And we need to proclaim this to the world. And because of that, they evangelize unbelievers. And the evangelical church grows and grows and grows throughout the 20th century. By the time you get to the end of the 20th century, the evangelicals have all the money, all the churches, and all the buildings, all the television programs, all the radio ministries, and they're influencing the nation. 
But as you get to the end of the 20th century, the wave of apostasy begins to erode even the conservative churches. And now 22 years into the 21st century, there is a tendency in many of our evangelical churches to say, well, maybe we shouldn't take these things so seriously. You know, maybe Jesus isn't really fully divine, uh, but he has divine truths and ideas uh, that can be helpful to us, etc. Uh, maybe we should quit calling people to faith and just call them to a better life of some sort, uh, etc. Uh, and all of a sudden, we have people who once would have proclaimed the message of the gospel walking away from it today. That's the last bastion of conservative Christianity that's left. And as people walk away from that, they walk away from biblical commitments like their commitment to marriage uh, and family and morality, a commitment to Israel, having a right to exist uh, in their own land, etc. And all of a sudden, the very groups that once defended these things are starting to water these things down and move away from them. That's one of those flashing lights that ought to get our attention. The wave of apostasy is already here. Uh, now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, Paul said, you know what? What is neutral? Is restraining him, the Antichrist, that he may be revealed in our own time. And the one who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the restrainer is both a what and a he. I, I think there's only one person in all the universe powerful enough to restrain the Antichrist from being identified and revealed, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, that the Spirit of God restrains evil through the church, through the message of the gospel, through the message of scripture, uh, and that that restraining ministry is still going on today until the time of the rapture, when the restrainer is removed, then and only then will Satan be free to empower someone to be the Antichrist. So again, uh, Satan has to wait until God makes his move first. Satan's limited by the sovereignty of God. And again, I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I've heard every crazy idea who it might be. It's usually some presidential candidate you didn't vote for. Uh, and you're convinced he's got to be the Antichrist. Uh, I, I, I've heard it all. Uh, it's John F. Kennedy. It's Gorbachev. He's got a birthmark on his forehead. Uh, it's Ronald Wilson Reagan. There are six letters in each of his three names. It's George Bush, and he doesn't know any better. Uh, it's Jimmy Carter. It's Bill Clinton, and Hillary's the false prophet. Uh, it's Obama. It's this person. I don't know anybody, though, who thinks it's Joe Biden. Uh, I haven't heard anybody say that uh, because the Antichrist is powerful, intelligent, uh, and uh, persuasive in every way. But our challenge is not to worry about who might be the Antichrist, but to look for anti-Christian systems that oppose the truth and push us further 
down the road of unbelief. So in Dr. Heinsohn's mind, the great apostasy has already begun. I would agree that a preliminary phase of apostasy has begun, but this phase is not the great apostasy. That still lies somewhat future based on various biblical passages that we've been examining in Matthew 24 and Revelation. As far as marriage goes, does anyone think that marriage as an institution is being strengthened in our society? The average age of people getting married has been increasing for a long time, which means they're putting it off as long as they can. According to U.S. Census figures, in 2021, the average age of marriage for a man was 30.4 years and for a woman 28.6 years. Compare that with a century ago, when the average age of marriage was a decade less for both. Considering that the age of fertility is from about 15 to 40, a loss of 10 years is about half of the available time to reproduce in a marriage, and the time that's left is the least fertile part of the reproduction time frame. This kind of delay is a demographic catastrophe that will lead inevitably to a shortage of children and an eventual collapse of society, at least to the extent that children are created and reared by married couples. But why is marriage being postponed and the rate of marriage declining? Let's listen to a few ideas from the world, from a man's perspective, albeit a controversial man. Andrew Tate is a former kickboxing champion, businessman, and current influencer on social media. He is the number one Googled influencer and has become enormously wealthy by providing the kind of social media content that a substantial component of the world wants to consume. He is far, far from being a Christian, but what he thinks about marriage sounds eerily reminiscent of what God had to say about marriage in the Bible, but from a worldly perspective. Full disclosure, just prior to recording this episode, Mr. Tate exchanged a few tweets with Greta Thornburg, the darling of the globalist environmental and political change movement. And for those who don't know, and I didn't until today, Andrew and Greta don't care much for one another, as their tweets made clear. Less than 24 hours after tweeting a response to Greta's antagonistic tweet, Mr. Tate was swatted at one of his homes, which happens to be in Romania, and was taken into custody for questioning as part of an alleged sex trafficking ring. These kinds of swatting actions and inflammatory charges that come out of nowhere are nothing new, but they are becoming increasingly used to silence people who are in the public eye and don't conform to the demands of the world and its globalist agenda. Andrew Tate is a big supporter of the male empowerment movement, which is a response to the male disempowerment movement that has been promoted and enforced for decades by those who advocate for the feminization of males, domination by women, and gender neutralization of the entire population. He was arrested, but two hours later he was released. These are the same charges that he was accused of a year ago and were investigated and found to have no basis. Citing an interview with Mr. Tate is not to in any way promote his views or his business activities. I use this interview simply to illustrate the way some men of the world think about marriage and the reason for its decline. Language warning, Mr. Tate sometimes utilizes spicy language. I don't think many men actually benefit from marriages or relationships anymore. And people are always going to have to require some degree of incentive. I think that we've set up the world now in a way where men are seen as worker droids. They're expected to go work all day, come home, uh, clean up as well, share the cleaning with the woman, not have any, not no meal prepared for them, not have any authority over the household and just, and just be a worker droid and be a sad. And I don't think that many people understand that men are intrinsically wired to desire respect amongst our peers and in our environments. This is why CEOs work so hard. 
because they get respect in their company. This is why we all want so much money and fast cars and status and influence because we're respected. Men desire respect like we desire oxygen. And if a man's coming home to a household where he doesn't feel any respect, he's not going to want to be there for very long. And I think the way you fix this is you need to understand that many men don't have an incentive to be in the house anymore. I, I think that it's actually would be quite easy for a woman. In fact, there's a couple women who even say this on YouTube. I can't remember their names, but it'd be quite easy for a woman to make a man really happy with super basic things. Just go up to your husband and say, hey, you know more about this. What do you think about this? That would make most men's world. And there's so many sexless marriages out there where men work their ass off and they come home to a sexless marriage and kids don't fucking even like it. If you were to just even ask him this question about some asinine bullshit, a lawnmower purchase, for example, he would feel so happy to feel like the man of the house. That's what men need. They need to feel like all this work I'm putting in, all this shit I'm going through, I'm respected for it. As soon as a man feels like he has no respect, that's the absolute end of, of a man's interest or a man's tolerance of the situation. I think that's the reason it's happening. I think I know a lot of men who completely love their wives. They love them with all their heart. They die for her. But he's just not respected in his house. He doesn't get to be the man of the house. Is it on him or is it on her? Like, does he need to go earn it or is it on her to provide it? It's a combination of both. I think it's certainly on him to earn it. But also the Matrix programming is counter to him. The Matrix programming is trying to tell him that he shouldn't be allowed to be the man of the house. That he shouldn't be allowed to have any kind of authority in any regard. You shouldn't be allowed to be able to say what happens. The matrix programming saying the absolute opposite all the time. And if that's getting into your woman and you don't have that much influence and that's getting to all your children, you don't have that much influence. Now you're coming home to a household where everyone just thinks you're the dude who should just fucking work. You're just a worker droid. You're the slave. You're the robot. And your feelings don't matter and your authority doesn't matter and get fucked. And this is, this is very conscious. If you watch any Netflix show, the mother is the smart one and the man is the bumbling idiot. Turn on a show. I dare you. Turn on a family show. The mother is the one, hey, hey, calm down, I'm smart. And the man's the look, beer. Watch any of these shows. They're trying to all of it, all of it, any, any of it, all of it. They're reducing, they're reducing the man to just a bumbling idiot. And it's very hard, I think, for a lot of men to accept being in a position of constant disrespect. I'll tell you this now. If I had to choose a long-lasting marriage with a woman who loved me or a woman who truly respected me, I might choose respect over love even though they're the same thing for a woman because she, she loves you, she respects you by default. But if I had to choose, I'd choose respect. I've been through too much and worked too hard and go through too much in day-to-day -day life to come home to my house and be having battles over asinine bullshit. I take care of you and I love you with all of my heart. I would die for you. If someone broke into this house, I would engage the invader and die. I'd please just cook dinner. Please, <laughs> what do you want from me? What more can I do for you? Like, and once they feel disrespected, this is another thing about the world that a lot of people don't understand. It's disrespect that will drive a man to the most heinous of crimes. It's disrespect that starts the school shooter bullshit. It's disrespect that makes men go to jail for life sentences. It's disrespect. When you truly disrespect a man in a public and permanent way, that's when they switch. That's why I'm so respectful in public. You don't know who the fuck you're talking to. He might be on his last fucking straw and you're just disrespected. Hey, you're a fucking bitch anyway. You're skinny motherfucker. Fuck you. You don't know. That might be the last time he heard it. I've had enough. You don't know. Disrespect is dangerous, right? And in a household where you're constantly disrespecting a man, he's going to end up depressed and sad for even accepting it. Men just want to feel respected. It's not that hard to do. If a woman, if you truly, I to anyone watching this, if you truly love your man, it would be so easy for you to just make him feel respected. It doesn't even take actions. You can do it with basic words. Ask his opinion on something. 
big him up once in a while. And because we're supposed to be Superman and we purport ourselves as Superman and we're stoic, but we talked earlier about how we still feel everything. So when you're a strong man, especially, they're like, ah, he's fine. He's fine. He's fine. He's fine. Be nice to the dude. You'd be surprised how far you get. But this is why I think most men walk out of marriages because they're like, you know what? I'm not getting any respect here. I get more respect from this dickhead stripper, 18 year old hoe for throwing money at her than I do giving money to my own wife. Where am I being respected? Well, at least she's smiling at me. She ain't smiled at me in years. Now, isn't it interesting that Mr. Tate said the Matrix programming makes men out to be stupid, idiotic robots whose only function is to work, bring in revenue, and maybe entertain women with our stupidity? The Matrix is a movie that posits a world of false perceptions based on deliberate programming by government authorities. Apparently, the worldly Mr. Tate deduces some nefarious intent from the political powers of the world. Many said are not getting married because they want and need the position of leadership in the family, and they would like some respect in that position, something that apparently many wives are not providing. I wouldn't know how worldly women treat their husbands, based on my household, so I have to rely on men of the world to tell me their perception of the matter. Apparently, it's bad enough that it keeps many men away from marriage, because Andrew is not the only influencer and podcaster I reviewed who said basically the same thing. What they may not realize is that many women have a hard time respecting men in their role as head of household, not because of the feminist movement necessarily, but because of the action of one woman all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verses, or verse 16. Due to Eve's rebellion against God, God burdened women with a couple of problems as punishment. God told Eve, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's not a reference to a sexual desire, but a power desire. Another translation clarifies what it means. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Women have an innate desire to obtain control and authority in their personal relationship with a man, including control of the household and the decisions regarding how it operates, which itself includes the interpersonal activities between the man and the woman. Decision-making authority was the very thing that God entrusted to Adam as the leader of the first household, and it was the very thing that Adam relinquished to Eve, who was supposed to be his supporter, not his director. Eve got decisive, and Adam got passive. They switched roles, just as many couples do today. The resulting punishment was that the female children of Eve would desire to exercise control and authority over their households, and the male children of Adam would have to work really, really hard, often in unpleasant conditions, to support wives who would often be unhappy and argumentative with their decisions. Unconstrained, these two curses inevitably lead to a decline in marriage rates and a corresponding increase in divorce rates. So detestable has this traditional concept of male authority become in our culture that there is even a pejorative term for it. Male authority is now called patriarchy, and it is roundly condemned by the Western globalist world. This pejorative justifies and encourages women's general contempt of men, their desire to lead a household, and their antagonism toward men who try to function in the position of leadership that God assigned to them. But as Andrew Tate pointed out, Disrespect is dangerous, and sometimes it leads to violence. In a family situation, it often creates dysfunctional relationships. But even when it doesn't, it tends to degrade and corrupt the workings of marriage. 
But degrading and corrupting marriage is not enough for those who wish to remake the world in an image that is not from God. They want men and women altered in so fundamental a way that they will willingly fulfill ungodly and unholy purposes. The corruption sought by the world extends even to the children produced by marriage. They've taken the rights and responsibilities that historically belonged solely to parents and gave them to unaccountable agents of government. Rights and responsibilities like educating the children and deciding the content of their education. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Paul reiterated this principle in Ephesians 6.4 when he wrote, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Training up and bringing up children means educating children, and it's supposed to be done with an eye toward God. As far as the content of the education goes, the government has increasingly asserted control over it, corrupting the very basis of godly education. As it says in Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom is knowledge or actions, wisdom in the Bible at least, is wisdom or knowledge or actions that align with God's will, and foolishness is the opposite. All godly education is supposed to align with wisdom and forsake foolishness. How often do our school systems teach this very simple, basic concept that should lie at the base, at the very root of all public education curricula? Answer, never. The long tentacles of government further extended into the health care field for our children, dictating what substances will be injected into them and when. Whether or not you believe that a covert military operation has been unleashed on the world, one in which physiologically harmful sterilizing chemical agents have been unleashed as bioweapons that masquerade as vaccines, it is inarguable that birth rates have declined around the world and most especially in Western industrialized countries that impose substantial health requirements on children like they're needing to be injected with dozens of vaccines before they even reach school age. These vaccines have had a devastating effect on Western fertility, according to many sources. According to United Nations data, in 1950, prior to the mass deployment of vaccines, the U.S. birth rate was 2.4%. For comparison, a 1.5% birth rate is considered the minimum replacement birth rate. Anything under 1.5% will result in an overall aging of the population, and decline in population size over time. So in 1950, the U.S. birth rate was a relatively healthy 2.4%, and it produced a growing population. But since 1950, the U.S. birth rate has declined every single year, despite all the medical interventions and pharmaceutical products available to keep us healthy, happy, and wise. Still, we managed to maintain replacement-level birth rates until just after the Roe v. Wade decision in 1977. At that time, the U.S. birth rate fell below the 1.5% replacement birth rate for the first time in U.S. history. Forty-five years later, in 2022, the U.S. birth rate has declined to just 1.2%. But in comparison with the rest of the Western world, the United States is a baby-producing machine. In 2022, Sweden, Ireland, Iceland, and the U.K., and Norway and Denmark all came in at a birth rate around 1.1%. Belgium, the Netherlands, Canada, Switzerland, and Estonia were at 1%. Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Slovenia logged in at only 0.9%. Finland, Taiwan, and Spain sank to 0.8%. Greece and Japan fell to 0.7%. 
and South Korea and Puerto Rico proudly took up the bottom of the birth rate lottery at an anemic 0.6%. Yet this steady decline in birth rate is not true everywhere in the world. In Bangladesh, Indonesia, and India, their 2022 birth rate was 1.7%. In the Philippines, Nicaragua, and Uzbekistan, they maintained 1.9%. Bolivia, Cambodia, and Honduras made 2%. Egypt was at 2.4%. Pakistan at 2.6%. Ghana at 2.8%. Sudan at 3.1%. Mauritania at 3.2%. Those are people, little island people out in the Pacific. And Nigeria. 3.6%. And topping the list, Congo and Angola had a whopping 3.9% birth rate. So it isn't that we can't produce babies to replace our populations. It's just that the only ones that are doing so are countries that we in the West often associate with horrendous healthcare systems, miserable economies, and dearth of available pharmaceutical products. Yet their birth rates are not just adequate to ensure their continued cultural survival, they are robust. What's different is that these countries are not under the thumb and control of the globalist elites and the United Nations, which from its inception has been obsessed with population control and management. Their most famous members and associates, like David Rockefeller Sr., were part of the eugenics movement of the early 20th century and were staunch supporters of population control measures instituted by leaders like Adolf Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Today, their descendants seek to impose new eugenic population control measures through such mechanisms as mass sterilizations, supply chain disruptions, engineered famines, and of course, widespread warfare. There is a reason the United States has spent over $100 billion on a war in Ukraine, and it has nothing to do with helping with their border security. The globalist masters don't worry about replacing the population because they have a plan to create designer babies in artificial wombs so that the future world dictators will gain control over every aspect of creating, birthing, and raising children, all for the glory and pleasure of the new world order, which means them. This is the artificial womb facility. A place where humans could be grown entirely from scratch. The devices you see here are called growth pods. Each growth pod is designed to replicate the same conditions that exist inside the mother's uterus. Growth pods are designed to host human fetuses until they are fully developed. These artificial wombs are designed to help premature babies to continue developing after their birth. But emerging scientific research is making it possible to use them to create designer humans entirely from scratch. Remember, the technologies in the movies and in the prototypes and concept displays are the technologies that exist and are being refined. Predictive programming is used to condition people to technologies that are going to be rolled out in the future probably as a covert weapon, and movies, prototypes, and concept displays are tools of predictive programming. Artificial wombs and the industrial womb centers are being discussed because the technologies already exist and I'm quite sure have been fully tested. Now they just need to condition the sheep to accept their reproductive prisons. So now we move from apostasy to the last item in the list, the famine of the word. To get from... Some will depart from the faith to a famine of the word of the Lord will require the forcible removal and disposal of something, 
and that something is those who elect to not depart from the faith. As long as Christians are around, and I'm talking about real Christians who are doctrinally sound, there will be no famine of the word because these Christians will proclaim it. Therefore, they will have to be removed. That removal and disposal process is foretold in other parts of Scripture, including Matthew 24, Revelation 2 and 3, and Revelation 6, the parallel Scriptures that we are studying. And it all happens under the watchful eyes of God the Father. In one sense, the theme of this podcast is authority. Who has it, who wants it, and how it's dispensed through time. So the power structure of the universe is worth reviewing one more time. The ultimate authority is God who created all things, who uphold all things, and who retains ultimate control over all things. He is a monarch, and he rules alone. There is no one who can usurp him. God describes himself as having three component parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each part has a separate personality and a separate function, but all three form one unified whole. The three act as one and are one, so everything in the heavens and the earth are subject to the authority of the one God, as well as to the components of the one God. At some point in history past, God gave Satan authority over the earth and the inhabitants of the earth, and that would be us. Satan, in turn, transferred some of this authority down to his angels. Satan had to do this because he is a created being, and angels, unlike God, cannot be everywhere at once. They are limited that way, so Satan needs a staff to carry out his orders. At an undisclosed point in history, there was an event that led to a revolt by Satan and his angels, directed against God. The cause of that event is not described in Scripture, but it is alluded to. In Ezekiel 28, God reflected back on the event that led to Satan's fall. He prefaced his reflection in verses 14 and 15 with praise for Satan when he said, You were the anointed cherub who covers, a cherub being a type or rank of angel who serves in the presence of God. It continues, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So from these verses, God reveals that Satan stayed in his good graces for some time after he was created because his behavior was perfect for a time. Now the text doesn't say that Satan himself was perfect, but rather his actions were perfect. But then something happened at the end of verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now the word for iniquity is the Hebrew word eval. It means injustice, perverseness, unrighteousness, even a violent deed of injustice. So what type of iniquity was found in him? We continue in verses 16 and 8 to 18. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. So twice God uses this word which is translated as trading. When words or ideas are repeated in the Bible, God's not stuttering. It's a form of emphasis designed to place special significance on what is repeated. The word trading is the Hebrew word rekula. It means merchandising, trafficking, or trading. 
You think today, we most commonly refer to this activity that Satan was engaged in as trafficking. Human trafficking. This is not the whole story of Satan, of course, but just a peek into the events that led to his fall, along with one-third of the angels who supported him. If you think the story of humanity begins with Adam and Eve, then in the words of the esteemed Paul Harvey, you do not know the rest of the story. Something important certainly begins with Adam and Eve, but Adam and Eve do not represent the beginning of humanity, nor do they represent the first people on the earth. By the time Adam and Eve made it onto the stage, Satan had already fallen through the abundance of his human trafficking. That's why he showed up in the Garden of Eden as Satan, the adversary, and not Lucifer, the cherub that covers. If you want more details about this topic, you can find them in my book that's not yet published, but soon will be if God wants it to be. Reach out to me about it. But we're not here to talk about the fall of Satan or the book, but rather the return of something that used to be in the world, but was set aside for a time. We've been looking at aspects of the war, the conflict that's raging between God and Satan, because all of us are caught in the middle of it. We have to make a choice which side we want to be on. We can choose Satan in his camp, or we can choose God in his camp. We can choose nothing, in which case it will be Satan's camp by default. As I said earlier, God's camp is commanded by his son Jesus Christ, the angel of God who was sent to fight on God's behalf. He is an angel in the sense of being a servant of God the Father and a messenger of God, which is the meaning of the word angel. Jesus was granted many titles in the Bible, including the angel of the Lord, Genesis 16:7, 2 Kings 19:35, commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua 5:14, son of the gods, Daniel 3:25, the man clothed in linen, Daniel 12:6, the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53:3, and over 50 names used as titles for Jesus in the New Testament. These are the commanders in this conflict, Jesus on one side and Satan on the other. Satan controls the world, and through it he influences events on the earth. Satan has one primary objective, corrupt the things of God and prevent God from carrying out at least one of his promises, thereby proving God to be a liar and winning his own freedom. A God who lies is an imperfect and sinful God, and an imperfect sinful God has no moral authority over any of his created beings. Something like that. There is obviously some reason that Satan continues to fight, so there has to be some way he can extract himself from the predicament of rebellion that he got himself into. So here we have the war, and for the past few episodes we've been examining some physical aspects to the war being waged by his human compatriots in the world. Hidden, covert weapons, deception, treachery, murder, lying. It's all in a day's work for Satan's forces. If we don't understand how Satan works in the world, we will inevitably fall in a big and very unfortunate way. And because the physical manifestation of the spiritual conflict is often confusing to us, Jesus provided detailed warnings about what was coming and how to avoid becoming a victim of the deception, especially during the lead-up phase to the Great Tribulation. Those warnings are contained in the first three chapters of Revelation, Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6. They are parallel prophecies and warnings for Christians during that future time. Of course, for them to be of any use, we have to correctly understand what the prophecies are talking about, and we have to recognize the events of the prophecies as they unfold around us. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 concern the enigmatic churches of Revelation, which we are using as anchor texts in our study, and the other two sources add some detail. We last left off with the church at Pergamos. 
When reading apocalyptic prophecy, there are some rules, one of which is that the details of a prophecy must occur in the order in which they are presented. So the first church at Ephesus concerned false messages from false teachers that caused the church to leave its first love, which is ministry. In other words, a false scare would cause some churches to stop doing normal ministry activities. Now, what could cause that? Additional detail from Matthew 24 shows that false messiahs, people passing themselves off as some kind of savior, were passing along false messages about something. They were lying. The white horse of Revelation 6 adds additional detail, telling us that a person from government went out to secure a victory by deploying some kind of covert weapon at a distance, and he was successful. Does any of this sound familiar? Scaring people with false messages, some experts presenting a solution to an existential threat, a government organization deploying hidden weapons disguised as something helpful and beneficial? Well, the next church at Smyrna would experience persecution from outside the church that would be directed at church leadership. The persecution would be initiated and directed by a shadowy group of people who say they are Jews but are not. They are actually practicing Satanists, but they do that privately out of public view. Some pastors would be thrown into prison for a short time, and God warns pastors to remain faithful all the way to the end of their lives. Matthew 24 adds the detail, This will occur during a time of wars and rumors of wars, when there is ethnic strife and international violence. Revelation 6 adds the detail that peace will be taken from the earth and people will kill one another. It doesn't say how people will kill one another, but maybe they will kill one another by being duped into helping to deploy a weapon at a distance. Maybe one that's disguised to look like something else. Like maybe a medical intervention. And maybe, if you are a pastor in Canada, for example, and you resist the call to submission, you will be thrown in prison. And maybe, if you are a pastor in California, for example, and you refuse to submit to the authorities, you will be threatened with imprisonment and assessed fines and criminal penalties. Nah, could, couldn't happen. And last time, we examined the third church at Pergamos, a mysterious church with a mysterious problem. Two problems, actually. The first problem is that the church has members who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which involves unrepentant sexual immorality. We call modern-day Nicolaitans antinomians, people who believe they can sin with impunity because Jesus paid the price for all sin for all time. Jesus said he hates that doctrine, and if they don't change, he will come and fight them. Part of the problem today goes even beyond antinomianism to what I call denialism. We have Christians and even entire denominations who deny that certain activities constitute sin, primarily the sexual variety of sin, and thereby act like Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That stumbling block was partly sexual sin and partly a sin that involved food, and both of those sins are a problem for the church at Pergamos. What kind of food constitutes sinful food in a modern context? Well, that's a good question. It's not the dietary restrictions of Judaism, because those restrictions were abolished by apostolic revelations. It's something that associates modern food with the activities of demons, which was the basis for the kind of sin the ancient Israelites were tempted into committing. We can debate what that will be, but I think it will have something to do with one of two things. Either it will be some kind of man-made food-like substance that was designed by demons for some demonic purpose, or it will be food that will require some demonic requirement from the recipient in order to obtain it. And what could bring that about in a church? 
Well, in both Matthew 24 and Revelation 6, we find the answer to that question in the form of food shortages that lead to famines. There's going to be a worldwide food shortage, and the food that is available will have some strings attached to it. Hunger and pragmatism will entice many Christians to take the food that's offered to them, regardless of the context. But Jesus instructs his followers not to do that, even in the face of famine. He promises that for those who do not take the incentivized food, he will provide food for them, just as God provided manna to the ancient Israelites in the desert. Which brings us up to the fourth church, the church of Thyatira. That's today's reading. Let's read about this church starting in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So just like the previous three churches, Jesus starts out by stipulating his credentials, then praising the church for the good works it has done. There's always an emphasis on works. Not works of salvation, but works of demonstration arising out of salvation. But then things turn bad. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So here we're introduced to one of the three women of Revelation. Jezebel is not an actual person. She is a symbol. A symbol in scripture is something that stands for something else. It stands for something real. But the symbol is not the actual thing, so there is no Jezebel. What she stands for is a church member who teaches and promotes a false doctrine to the congregation. It might be a woman, but not necessarily, but in our modern context, I think it often is a woman. She is part of the church leadership team because the leaders allow her to teach false doctrines to the congregation, yet they don't correct her. And what is it that this minister is teaching that's wrong? She is teaching the same things as the church at Pergamos, sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. In some ways, this church sounds like a repeat of the church at Pergamos in that both involve sexual sin and food. But the difference is that in this case, rather than the church members bringing these practices into the church, it is the church leadership that advocates the practices to the church members. That's worse, as Jesus implies with his solution to the problem. Verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So this is not a teaching that just popped up, but more of a systemic problem that's probably been building for some time. Verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Now, Jesus does not say these people will experience tribulation, but rather great tribulation. That's a phrase reserved for God's judgment, which implies that God's judgment has not yet started. If that's the case, who is causing all the difficulties in these passages? Well, that would be Satan and his loyal followers. It is Satan who is responsible for this part of the end times. Jesus continues, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So in the context of killing, killing with death does not make much sense. After all, what other kind of killing is there? I suggest that's not what it means. 
For reasons that will become apparent a little bit later in the Revelation, the terms death and Hades are more likely names of fallen angels who have responsibilities associated with death. One brings physical death to people, and the other transports dead souls to their place of holding and keeps them at that location until Jesus recalls them at the Last Judgment. The Bible refers to that location as Hades. This warning was necessary because Christians know from other scriptures that when they die, they will immediately go to be with the Lord. Jesus is talking to those people who call themselves Christian, but demonstrate they are not by these two specific unrepentant sins, teaching and practicing unrepentant sexual sin and eating food sacrificed to demons. They are not going to die and go immediately to be with the Lord. Instead, they will be killed by the angel death and taken by the angel Hades to the place of holding. That's why he had to phrase it that way. Jesus knows the mind, the heart, and the thoughts of every man, woman, and child, including you and me, and he gives to us according to our works of demonstration. That is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we don't fear what Christ can and will do to us, we will not perform those acts that demonstrate that we belong with him. But if we do perform those acts, then the rest of the passage is written to us. Verses 24 to 29. Now, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's not a bad deal. We're going to share in power over the nations, which are political entities, so we have a future of political rulership ahead of us. For all the globalists and globalist supporters who lord it over us now, their day of judgment is coming. So what do the parallel passages add to this? Well, according to Matthew 24, the church leadership problems are created because the world governments hate the churches that promote sound Christian doctrines. Matthew 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So these people enter the churches to remove those leaders who teach sound doctrines including, if not especially, sexual immorality and restraint from the food that the government will want you to eat. Fear of man drives some church leaders to comply with the authorities and promote the values of Satan in the church. This persecution is confirmed in Revelation 6, verses 7 to 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So here we see two angels with the names of death and Hades. Death is first, followed by Hades. Death kills, Hades imprisons. Power was given to them, which refers to death and Hades, but also includes any human counterparts that they control. The next part of this section is very interesting and has a couple of possible interpretive resolutions. The most common interpretation is that they will kill a fourth of the people on the earth, but that's not what the passage says. It says power is given to them over a fourth of the earth. Three-fourths of the earth they don't have power over. 
Now what fourth are they talking about? It can't be the victim class, because the fourth they are given power over are given power to kill in four ways, with weapons, with hunger, with death, and with the beasts of the earth. So the fourth must therefore be the killers. Now who constitutes this fourth? That's a matter of interpretation, but one interesting interpretation is that it will be the sworn historic enemy of Christianity, which would be Islam. It just so happens that Islam claims a fourth of the world's population. As for how death comes, it will come by weapons that are symbolized by the sword. It will come by death, which will be instigated by the angel death, probably by manifesting itself in the mind of the killers as a crazed zeal to kill. That would fit. It will come by hunger and famines, which implies that these things are manufactured through the deployment of specialized weapons like maybe weather warfare weapons, supply chain disruption weapons, and transportation collapse weapons. And finally, it will come by the beasts of the earth. There are a lot of creative explanations for this term, from wild animals to microbes. But if we try to extract meaning from the Bible, what does the term beast refer to in the Bible? In the general context, it is used to describe God's view of human government and governmental leaders. So death will be unleashed on churches and Christians around the world by a subset of the population that hates Christians, using all sorts of weapons, spiritual zeal, manufactured famines, and official government actions. And all of this terror and misery just takes us through the first four of seven churches of Revelation, all of which happens before the really bad events that are unleashed by God begin. Are we seeing why Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 21 to 22, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But having said that, we need to recognize that Jesus is not giving us these instructions so we can be fatalistic and just say, Well, God has this. What can I do? The Bible doesn't warn us over and over and over for no reason to not be fooled, to not be tricked, to not be deceived. There is a real consequence that we will experience if we are fooled, tricked, and deceived. Our job is not just to avoid these things, but to help others to avoid them, even if it costs us our life. That's why Jesus takes the time to tell us about these things. Do you see the parallels to our current age? If you do, do you see that you are one of the watchmen or watchwomen on the wall, and Jesus, as your Lord and Savior, is giving you a job to do? if not now, in the near future? You are the weapon that Jesus has to wield against the powers of Satan, a weapon for good and not for evil, a weapon of truth in the face of great lies. And anyone of any size, stature, or intellect can be a weapon for Christ. Or we can be disinterested, apathetic, and disengaged. Where do you stand? If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and give it a happy face, a five-star or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be found on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, and Podchaser. Chaser. I should mix these up. You know, it's not really fair to put the same ones, you know, in the same order. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristianoutlook.com. Oh, the minutes go by so fast. There's so much to talk about, so much to get straight in our minds and hearts, and so little time to do this work. 
Lord, give us the strength and determination to do your work standing with Christ against the forces of darkness that are rising all around us so that we can be the champions of truth and life that you call us to be. Strengthen our hearts and minds in Jesus, the only person who is ever going to rule a truly unified world, who will do so with an iron fist, an iron rod, and a household filled with redeemed human beings who have been elected to stand and rule the nations with Christ. Gosh, that's a lot better than the fixed elections we have to endure now.